You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hi, and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, podcast addict and reader of books. Hi, everybody, and welcome if you're new, and welcome back if you're not. So I I set myself a little challenge because... It is Women's History Month in the UK. So I thought, why not bite the bullet (laughs) and actually talk about the six Tudor queens, the six wives of Henry VIII. So are you ready for this one? Right? So that means you're going to get more episodes this month uh, because it is March. We're we're already a couple days into March. And we are going to, we're going to just go through them all. Each queen is going to have their own episode because... What I found usually with when it comes to the six wives of Henry VIII is that Catherine of Argonne gets an episode, Anne Boleyn gets an episode, and then the rest of them all kind of get lumped together. And I'm like, okay, why doesn't everyone get equal billing? I can understand, because as far as I'm concerned, they all deserve to have their stories told. And that's what I'm going to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing double the work. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. So without further ado, we've got a lot to go through. So let's just jump right into it. And I know what you're thinking. Fact me, damn it. Well, I will. I will fact you. So sources. Going to do some sources. We have Catherine of Aragon, Henry Spanish Queen by Giles Trimlett. The Six Wives of Henry VIII by Alison Weir. Then, of course, we have History.com, Biography.com and Britannica.com. So let's talk about Catalina. So fun fact... Um, her name wasn't initially Catherine, it was actually Catalina. It was only when she moved to England that she had to adopt an English name. This is something that generally royal ladies did. So if you moved to another country, you would have to adopt the customs and nature of that country. So Catalina, her parents were Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon. Queen Isabella is sort of known as a, as a warrior queen. And she aligned herself with Ferdinand in order for them to create Spain. So they had a united Spain. And these two are like a proper power couple. See, these are the same people who sent Columbus to America and also instigated and ran. And also were the heads of the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, otherwise known as the Spanish Inquisition. So they were very, very religious, shall we say. So Catalina is born in 1485. And so 
Her parents are like, we need to get like an Anglo-Spanish alliance going on. So what they do is they betroth the Infanta Catalina with King Henry VII's eldest son, Prince Arthur, when she was like three years old. So all of Ferdinand and Isabella's children were highly educated. And Catherine was one of the higher educated women of the the day. Generally with the nobility, what they would do is their children would go and be fostered by, you know, other nobles and other royals. It was a way of, you know, building trust and ensuring like fealty and, you know, building alliances. But Ferdinand and Isabella were different. They kept their children with them. So when they went into battle, they brought the children with them. They didn't like, they didn't bring the children into battle. Like they weren't, they didn't give them like a tiny little dark and be like, stabby stab. No, they, they brought them with them when they toured. They brought- so Catherine was one of the most educated princesses in Europe. This like famous cleric, Alessandro Geraldini, was her tutor. She was multilingual. She spoke Spanish and Latin and French and Greek. Not only this, she was skilled in arithmetic, classic literature, genealogy, history, philosophy, law and theology. Again, her parents ran the bloody Spanish Inquisition and so it's not surprising that that she was going to be so well versed in church law. But the education did not stop there. She had lessons in courting, cunning and statecraft. So she was being educated to be a ruler, to be a leader and not to be merely a princess. So yeah, Prince of Wales Arthur and the Infantina Catalina, they are engaged, right? So Catherine and him are engaged. Yeah, they're both like three years old, I think, at that point. Even during the Renaissance, they thought three's a bit young to get married. Let's not do that. So they did the reasonable thing and waited for them to turn 15. Because sure, as long as she's menstruating, it's time to marry. What I find really funny is like during all this time, while she's, you know, learning all these languages, nobody thought maybe she should learn English. And in England, nobody thought Arthur should learn Spanish. So they would write letters to one another. So during their whole courtship, what, 12 year engagement, they would write letters to each other in Latin, you know, to get over the the English-Spanish language barrier. So by the time they're 15 and meeting, they're like full of all of these hormones and they've got crushes and everything else. But um, their first meeting was an absolute shit show. So yeah, in October 1501, she set sail for England. So Catherine and her entourage, they are received at Dogmersfield in 1501 with King Henry VII and Prince Arthur in a, a greeting ceremony, which is just how it was done. So basically they're writing love letters to one another in Latin. But when they start talking, they realise they have different pronunciations that are so different, they literally could not understand each other. (laughs) So they get married 10 days later on the 14th November at the old St. Paul's Cathedral. And it is big. It is the event. It is lavish. The royal wedding was such a massive celebration. And Prince Arthur even says before the wedding, I'm going to be a true and loving husband. However, as we know, things are... I mean, he he was he was true and, until the end of his days. The thing about Arthur is Arthur is actually generally he's not the healthiest of people, you know. So it is like the fairy tale wedding. But anyway, the two of them they go to Ludlow Castle on the border of just on the border of Wales, and this sweating sickness is raging through, and they both catch it, and they both become terribly, terribly ill. So Catherine is bedridden. She is delirious. She is close to death. 
she ends up spending days fighting for her life. And when she survives, everyone is shocked. However, when she wakes up, she discovers that even though she managed to pull through the sweating sickness, Arthur didn't. Her husband was not so lucky. At the age of 16, she's now a widow. On the 2nd of April, 1502, Arthur, Prince of Wales, dies. And this is bad enough, but then this also throws a spanner in the works when it comes to her existence in England. So her position after the death of her husband, it's a bit more um precarious now. So here's the thing. Catherine had a wedding dowry of 200,000 ducats. Half of it was paid before and half of it was due to be paid after. However, Isabel, Queen Isabella and Ferdinand, along with King Henry, the marriage contract stated that if Princess Catherine was to return home, she would also bring her dowry back with her. And obviously, King Henry VII is like, oh, oh no, oh, because he doesn't want to have to send that money back. On the 2nd of February 1503, Elizabeth of York dies. So that's King Henry's wife. She is... Yeah, so on the 2nd of February 1503, she gives birth to a daughter who she names Catherine, but then the baby dies a few days afterwards. And then Elizabeth dies on the 11th of February from a postpartum infection. And also, it's on her 37th birthday. What's strange is that generally with royals, so after King Henry VII gets over his mourning period, and he's like, I should really remarry. And then he thinks, oh, you know what? Two birds, one stone. If he marries Princess Catherine, first of all, doesn't have to go looking for a new wife, doesn't have to like wait for her to come across the sea or anything like that because she's already there. And two, means he doesn't have to send back those 100,000 ducats. So King Ferdinand's like, I- I'm not really comfortable with having my 16-year-old daughter marry a 45-year-old man. So, um, no. And it was also questioned regarding the legitimacy of their wedding. Like, so Henry thinks, you know what? Super handy. If you're not going to marry me, you can marry... Henry Jr. That, there we go, that solves that problem. Okay, so canon law, church law, basically states that a man is forbidden to marry his brother's widow. This is going to come up later as well. But, however, canon law, church law, also states that an unconsummated marriage, so they did, if they didn't knock boots, if they went, so if they didn't shag, which they didn't, generally because they were sick. See, Arthur was kind of sickly anyway, and they only shared a bed, like, seven times so no one actually viewed the bedding it never happened and with them being so young and inexperienced church law says that unconsummated marriages can be dissolved Catherine testifies that i think one of the statements was like she is as true as the day she exited her mother's womb or something so basically pope julius ii has to grant a special dispensation to henry and Catherine to basically state that you know So, like, basically invalidating the previous marriage. You have to remember, first of all, that Catherine is five years older than Henry. So, you know, she wasn't about to marry an 11-year-old. You know what I mean? So, like, marrying a 12-year-old when you're 17, probably not um, at the top of your to-do list. You know what I mean? And the age difference is one reason why it took so long for them to actually get married. But another reason was um, King Ferdinand was really stingy and very slow in sending over the rest of her dowry. So basically, Catherine is a prisoner in England. She was set up in Durham House in London, and effectively, she has no financial support. She's broke, basically, in this old, drafty manner, and she has to not only support herself, but also her ladies-in-waiting, because she's a fucking princess. But then, 
So 1505 comes around. So England and Spain are falling out effectively. And they're like complaining that this marriage to Henry isn't going to happen. And Prince Henry's like, I'm 14 now. I don't want to marry this old chick. (laughs) Here's the thing. When Arthur died, King Henry VII, he basically locks up Prince Henry. So he is being schooled alongside his sisters. He's under the tutelage of Margaret Beaufort. And he's just kind of inside. So he's basically locked away like a princess would be because King Henry was so worried about anything happening to his spare heir. You know what I mean? So Henry's life being what it was, he was a very energetic, very excitable, very strong young man. And he was then caged suddenly. And all this energy had nowhere to go. Like there's one of the theories going around that like, if he'd been alive today, he would have been diagnosed with ADD uh, just because of like all the energy he had and how he didn't pay attention. Or maybe he was just fucking bored. And like we said, when he turns 14, he has some sense of agency. When he finally has a chance of some agency for himself, he's like, no, I don't want to marry her. I don't want all my choices made for me. He's trying to retain that little bit of agency that he has. And you can't fault him for that. Not at 14, you know? And he's like, I don't want to marry this Spanish princess. I don't want to do it. Nah, fuck that. So Catherine needs to stay in royal favour, effectively. So her dad and her come up with this, like, fantastic idea. Instead of her being, like, a royal bride, she becomes the Spanish ambassador to England. Which is pretty cool, because that means she's the first female ambassador in Europe. It also meant that she had money, because if she was being paid to be an ambassador, she was actually going to be able to keep herself and her ladies-in-waiting. So during this time where she's a prisoner, King Henry is an absolute dick to her. He tries to trick and manipulate her, but but shock horror, he underestimated her. Why? Because she's a woman. So yes, after seven long years, so King Henry VII dies in 1509. King Henry's like just shy of his 18th birthday and he's like, yep, cool, Uh, I'm, I'm king. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry you. But then when, you know, the kingship is thrust upon him, he realises that he must marry. It wasn't a love match, per se. It was very much England versus Spain. So royalty and the nobility, they were expected to marry for duty, for alliances. It's not so much a wedding of Henry and Catherine. It is, however, the wedding of England and Spain. I mean, when you think about who his mother was and then who his grandmother was, he was actually surrounded by strong-willed women. But yes, when they get married, she is 23, he's 17, 18. And the concept of marrying the more mature Catherine would somehow be appealing to him, you know, as as a young man. However, their inexperience would be equally matched. And here's the thing about kings and queens, like they were expected to be chaste before they were wed. So she, so they get married on the 11th of June, 1509, and she becomes the Queen of England. So this wasn't the same sort of lavish, huge ceremony that she'd had with Arthur. It was a much more private affair. On the 23rd of June, 1509, and on the following day, to show that they are a power couple, and they get crowned together in this huge ceremony to show that they are you know, the king and queen that they are equal to show that she's not second best, you know? So Catherine has been trained to be a queen. All of her schooling, everything has led for her to rule. But she was also trained in the queenly ways. So when 
Henry has his court and he is doing as he pleases and he's having the, you know, the courtly games and partying and everything else. Boasting away, chatting away, having a laugh, being one of the lads, really. Catherine was always more reserved, more quiet, more contained. And the temper that she had when she was younger was reined in pretty sharpish. But that woman was fucking stubborn. And that's just who she was. She was strong-willed, she was intelligent, and she was stubborn. But she was also contained and sober and somber. And she believed that God had put her in her place, in her rightful place, as the Queen of England. Which, later on, would be her undoing. So two months after they get married, Catherine's pregnant. And like most of her pregnancies, this was going to end in tragedy. She had six kids altogether. Um, Princess Mary, who everyone knows, ends up being Queen Mary I of England. Um, she's the only one to survive into adulthood. Catherine has two boys. They're both named Henry, Duke of Cornwall. But... And neither one of them actually lives more than a few months. And she is so desperate to provide the king with an heir that, a male heir, I should say, that she goes on pilgrimages and visits shrines to pray to God to give her a healthy baby boy. Because Catherine is really devout. She is a devout Christian. Like, she is hardcore. So while she's dealing with stillbirths and miscarriages and everything else, so Henry's started his affairs and generally nobles did this kings were known to have mistresses it was just a thing right and so at this point he's shagging elizabeth or anne hastings it's kind of a great area oh my god i forgot to say like catherine is a redhead beautiful she's described as being as having like a cherub like face so sort of cute and roundish and she's meant to be absolutely gorgeous Red hair, green eyes. Like, people even say that she's so... Like, that she was just so ridiculously beautiful. It's, like, such a stunner. And Prince Henry back in the day was apparently a nice piece of ass too. But, um, good looks can only take you so far. So, here's the thing about Henry VIII. He liked wars. He liked wars. He was always in a battle of some kind. He seemed to really like wars. And that's what happened to a lot of his money. A lot of the kingdom's money kind of went on to, um fighting wars so he goes off on so he's off on a campaign in france and he basically makes her his regent in 1513 so and which gives her like this unprecedented political power so yeah so she is catherine regent of england governor of the realm and captain general so while henry's off doing his thing king james the fourth of scotland who by the way is married to margaret tudor That's right, Henry's sister. Over in Scotland, they're like, hey, the throne is empty. Why don't we just go and and take it? But they uh, they didn't realise quite how stubborn and clever she was. Because this is Queen Isabella's daughter. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. She don't take no shit, boys. So she responds to the Scottish threat, raises an army in all the counties in the mainland, and then heads north. So when the Scots invade England, she's like, you know what, fuck this for a game of soldiers, I'm going there. Also, in addition, furthermore, she's seven months pregnant at this time. So she gives these speeches and she boosts soldiers' morale. She gets allies. She raises armies. She makes banners. She helps orchestrate the battle. Like, she knows statecraft. She knows what she's doing. So a lot of the time people say that, you know, she was at the Battle of Flodden that she was in and she was like hacking and slashing and going like full Boudicca. But she wasn't. She got as far as, I think, either Buckingham or Buckinghamshire. She basically makes it to Buckingham, which is only like 60 miles north of London, and then finds out that there, there was a victory. So after the Battle of Flodden and King James is killed, and along with quite a lot of the Scottish nobility, Catherine shows just how terrifying she can be. She sends the, the torn, bloodied coat of King James IV of Scotland. She sends this to Henry and suggests that he use it as a banner for his battles over in France. Which is which is a lot e- nicer than her previous idea because what she initially wanted to do, she wanted to send the corpse of the Scottish king because she was like, like this shows that you are not one to be trifled with. But then she um quote unquote realised that Englishmen were too weak-bellied to, you know, deal with the transportation. <laughs> Of a rotting corpse. A rotting noble corpse. A couple of days after the battle, she goes into premature labour and has another stillbirth. So in 1516, Princess Mary is born. And Henry is such a dick. And he basically tells her that because this one is a girl and is surviving, it means they've got a better chance for a healthy boy next time. I just, I just, Henry was not the sharpest sword in the wall, was he? So Henry gets another mistress and Bessie Blount. And Catherine is generally, you know, accepting of his dalliances. But but this one really made her angry. The affair with Bessie lasts three years and, and Bessie gives birth to a healthy boy who they name Henry Fitzroy, which means like son of the king. So there's lots of theories as to why Catherine's pregnancies didn't really pan out. Um, Some think she may have had a genetic condition. So there's a theory that Henry VIII had a weird blood group anomaly. 
McLeod syndrome. Effectively a genetic disorder and it's like specific to this kelp blood group. The way it works is, so if Henry and his partner's blood group was incompatible, it could be the reason for, and this could be a reason why three of his wives had such terrible reproductive issues. And it could also explain why he went kind of turns into a physically and mentally impaired tyrant. But then, another theory is that Catherine suffered from anorexia. But then there's also the fact that during pregnancy, like, it was expected to eat these sort of rich, heavy foods, which were, which generally are not very good for pregnancy. Not usually the most nutritional stuff to eat. But yeah, so by the 1520s, Catherine can no longer conceive. So as Catherine gets older and menopause hits, you know, more kids isn't really an option. And in 1522, she hires Anne Boleyn as her lady-in-waiting. And over the next three years, things would get kind of intense. Like Catherine, Anne was smart. She was intelligent. And she absolutely refused to boink Henry. She wouldn't do it. So she was 11 years younger than Henry. And she, so she was prime. She was a lady in waiting for Queen Claude. who was deeply pious, as was Anne. So Henry's starting to obsess over Anne. And he is doing everything he can to get rid of Catherine. As far as Henry is concerned, their union, like their marriage was cursed because... He had broken canon law when he married his brother's widow, even though they got a dispensation from the Pope to say it was fine. But whatever. When he started chasing Anne to when he actually married Anne, it was like eight years. Henry wants their marriage annulled, right? And it wasn't uncommon for royals to have their marriages dissolved. You see, King Louis XII did it with Joan of France and she ends up, Joan of France ends up like joining a nunnery. Starting a nunnery? Either running to a convent or starting a convent. I'm not entirely sure about that one. So Henry is a piece of shit. And he's like, listen. Because Henry has this habit of he wants to erase the memory of his spouse, right? He just wants to do it. He wants to erase them from his life forever. So he's like, so he tries to convince Catherine to join a co- to like, to take the annulment and to go join a convent like Joan did. And Catherine, Catherine's smart. So Catherine responds with, God never called me to a nunnery. I am the king's true and legitimate wife. The way royalty works is they have this concept of, you see it in ancient Egypt as well, it is the divine right of kings. And they believe that they have been put there by God, that God has chosen them to rule. They are kings and queens as a result of God's will. And Catherine had the same belief. She believed that God had chosen her to be the queen of England. That's why she was supposed to marry Arthur. That's why Arthur died. Everything has to have a purpose because because that's just how her belief system worked. Which is why when she becomes so stubborn, when she is ousted and her estrangement happens, it is all the more daunting for Catherine. And as a result of Catherine's devout nature and stubbornness, and of course, Henry being a fucking tool, the king's great matter comes into existence. So Catherine is actually really loved by the people of England and they think Anne is just this strumpet. So all these English women flock to support her during the annulment of her marriage. They want to get Anne. Like, that's what they want to do. It's so funny. So the great matter, he basically tries to convince, you know, the Pope to dissolve the marriage. So basically there's this trial. Henry states that 
he's basically basing it on this whole thing that the Bible passage says that their marriage was wrong in the eyes of God. The whole thing of like, if a man marries his brother's widow, uh, they will be childless. Except they're not childless. Because like to him, a child is a son. Because Mary doesn't matter. And what does Catherine do at this trial? What does she do? She goes on her knees and tells him how she has been an obedient wife. And you know, that she's always been a good, honest and true wife. You know, that she's always supported him, so on and so forth. She just, mwah, oh, it was, it's stellar. But it didn't work. Also, her nephew, Emperor Charles V, was holding the Pope hostage. So the Pope was like, ha ha ha, nah, Henry, you're good, you're married, you're fine. Henry decides to leave the Catholic Church. So yeah, he, you know, starts a reformation, puts himself as the head of the Church of England, separates from the Catholic Church, you know, regular things you do. Annuls his own marriage, by the way. And, and, just to show how much of a prick he is, in July 1531, he goes on a hunting trip. And just doesn't come back. He leaves Catherine and Mary behind. He moves his court with him. He then decides to banish Catherine from his court and then moves Anne Boleyn into her old rooms. So Catherine is fighting to save her marriage. But not only that, it's not just her she's fighting for. She's fighting for Mary because she needs to ensure that she is protected. If their marriage is annulled, Mary becomes illegitimate. And... Catherine suffered poverty and she suffered poverty and imprisonment and she doesn't want that for her daughter. She wants her to have a good life. But on May 23rd, 1533, the Archbishop of Canterbury says the marriage is null and void. And then five days later, he was declared married to Anne Boleyn because they got married in a secret ceremony. And he got rid of anything that resembled Catherine. He just ripped it all out. Off it went. Out of the castle. And after 23 years, 11 months, and 19 days, being the first and longest wife of Henry VIII, their marriage is dissolved in Henry's eyes. But Catherine continues to refer to herself as the one true queen. So over the next four years, Catherine basically, she just keeps trudging around, moving from castle to castle, basically on the outskirts of English society. And she starts going a bit loopy. So when she's at Combolton Castle, she does some extreme self-isolation and imprisons herself in one room in the house. And she leaves it only to go to Mass. And don't worry, this gets worse. Not only does she starve herself and lock herself away, she starts wearing this hair shirt. And it's basically this like coarse and rough and unpleasant shirt which is meant to quote-unquote mortify the flesh. It's supposed to promote repentance. Like, what is she going to repent? So Henry, Henry not content with being a fucking prick, decides to be an asshole as well. Not only does he banish her, stops her from talking to their only daughter Mary, who, by the way, he has deemed illegitimate, she cannot see or talk to her. Like, completely all communication is banned. So she risks treason to get letters to her daughter. And Henry, not content with being an asshole, also decides to be a scumbag. Not not content with banishment and keeping her child from her. He writes these whinging, whining, 
angry letters. He nags her, demanding that she recognises Anne as the true Queen of England because she won't submit. And he tries to really fuck with her. He offers her and Mary better lives and better living quarters if they just politely acquiesce to his request and bow down to Anne as the true queen. But Catherine being stubborn was just like, was like, um, no. Top it all off, she ensured that her servants continued to refer to her as the true queen of England. Whereas Henry wanted to make it clear that she was Arthur's wife and not his, and kept referring to her as the Dowager Princess of Wales. So in 1535, she is getting sick. And she knows, she knows that she's at death's door. And she writes a letter to Henry. And it's kind of like a last will and testament, but it's also um, where she sort of confronts him, but also absolves him, pardons him for like all his wrongdoings. She writes... I pardon, you know, I pardon you for everything and I pray that God will pardon you too. She asks that and asks that he, you know, actually takes care of their daughter Mary. And then in the gut-wrenching heartache of it all is she ends the letter with, Lastly, I make this vow that mine eyes desire you above all things. (sighs) However, Catherine doesn't die alone. Catherine's best friend... Maria de Salanis travels 60 miles on horseback to get to Catherine before she dies. She tells the guards that, oh, whoops, I am a silly woman and I lost the paperwork because I'm such a silly lady. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Obviously, you wouldn't lie about a thing like that. And she goes in and her friend stays with her till the end. So the embalmer is freaked out because like her body is in perfect condition except for her heart, which has a, has turned black. Now, some people, there was like a, a rumour going around at the time that like Anne and Henry had poisoned her. But the modern theory is that she just had cancer of the heart. Thus ends our story of Catherine of Aragon. Oh, the reason she was referred to as Catherine of Aragon, it was sort of used as a way to demean her. That she was Catherine of this Spanish, little Spanish area. So what did we learn today? That women of the past had a really shit time and that Henry clearly was a piece of shit. Don't marry fuckboys. Even if you want to be queen, don't do it. No. And that one should always have a best friend who's willing to commit treason for you. Now, I'm about to go finish this book on Anne Boleyn. And join me next time when we talk about Anne Boleyn and how she's not quite... Oh, yes. If you liked today's episode, feel free to go on to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and rate and review five stars please it does really well for me it means that apple promotes it a bit more and that more people will get to hear me talk about stuff i want to thank everybody who has already rated it, it means so much to me thank you so much you have no idea how much it helps on this end um also if you want to support me you can always go to my patreon so it's patreon.com slash who did what now and that all starts from one euro a month so it's nice and small just because you know and obviously that is not the only way you can support me but you can also follow on all the social medias. I am Who Did What Now Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and somewhere else. And TikTok. Who Did What Now PD on Twitter. And I am very tired now. It's very late and I'm starting to lose my voice. So I am going to bid you all good night. And I will chat to you again next time. Where we are going to discuss Anne Boleyn. So adios. Au revoir. Au revoir to Zen, my friends. Farewell. <laughs> 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.